The fact that Congress took one look at George Santos and said, no, we want this guy to stick around. So it's come to this. The only disqualifying (laughs) possibility for Congress is if you thought that Biden won the election and you're Republican. (laughs) Evidently, that does seem to be a disqualifying fact. Other than that, all's good. Right. Purge Liz Cheney, but keep George Santos. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. Hi, Jane, and hi, Susan. Hey, Evan. Great to see you. Great to be with you guys. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has once again found himself under a harsh spotlight in Washington. On Monday, Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee announced plans to subpoena three conservative activists about their influence on the court. Among them was Justice Thomas's close friend and benefactor Harlan Crow. Of course, this investigation is part of a much bigger story. Thanks to some fantastic reporting around the country in the past year, the ethics of the Supreme Court have come under scrutiny like never before. Investigations have revealed questionable behavior by several of the justices, including receiving lavish gifts without reporting them and failing to recuse themselves in cases where many people see a conflict of interest. So why has one branch of government been allowed to regulate itself for so long? And who has the responsibility to clean it up? This week, we're taking a closer look at those questions and exploring how the Supreme Court's unchecked power has affected our politics. So let's start with the news coming from the Senate Judiciary Committee this week. Susan, what did Democrats on the committee say they are investigating and and what are they hoping to find with these potential subpoenas? Well, you know, Evan, you pointed out there's been a wave of uh, really important investigative reporting that is powering a lot of this, including, I think, uh, you know, this is an example where the Senate is following the headlines and hoping to uh, produce more there. Uh, Dick Durbin, who is the uh, senator from Illinois, the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, he and others have been looking for an opportunity. Uh, They've been writing letters, demanding information all year. And I think it's notable that they are moving forward with an actual investigation into Clarence Thomas. These questions about uh, whether he received a loan that might not have been paid back to to buy, of all things, an RV, uh, (laughs) which has a certain uh, uh, all-American irony to it. Uh, but it's 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 part of what has now been uncovered, which is a real pattern by Justice Clarence Thomas in particular on the court of receiving big trips and uh, other kinds of gifts. And it's not clear that anything is technically wrong or improper about this, in part because the Supreme Court isn't really accountable uh, to so hmm. many people. So I'm sure that's that's one of the big issues that's going to be raised. But, you know, it's also a part of clearly the politicization uh, of the court. And we're moving into a different moment when the court is playing a different role in American public life. I don't think, Jane, you correct me here, but I don't think we would have seen uh, a congressional committee like this Democratic-controlled uh, Senate Judiciary Committee opening up an investigation into Supreme Court justice 20, 30 years ago. I just, I feel like this just represents a kind of a, a, the moment that we're in right now. 
Yeah, I mean, historically, you have to go back to basically around the time of Abe Fortas during the the LBJ administration when there was a sort of serious effort and pressure put on, at the time, a Supreme Court justice who was then about to be made the um, chief justice. And it was also very political and very caught up in his finances and and probes into his finances. But um, we haven't seen this in a long time. And I I think Susan's absolutely right. What we're looking at is a very different attitude now towards the Supreme Court than we've been used to for quite a long time. It seems to me that it started when the Dobbs decision came down Mm. and right before maybe when when the Supreme Court let stand uh, the the Texas decision on the SB-8 bill that allowed sort of the banning of almost all abortions with very few exceptions in Texas. And that teed up an issue that in itself was so embroiled in American politics that it it, it cast the the uh, court into a very political light. And I think I think when the Dobbs decision came down, people were completely thunderstruck. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I mean, for years, people had been warning on the liberal side, you know, someone could overturn Roe v. Wade. And no one really believed it. But so when it actually happened, I think it was just plain stunning to people and put a spotlight on the court, a very bright one that hadn't been shown on it for a very long time. And there's been a feeling since then, um, and it's been articulated actually by some some of the people who are sort of experts on journalism and, and people who are experts on covering the law, that it's time to cover the court as another branch of the government. Cover it the way people cover Congress. Mm. It's not Mount Olympus. The people who sit on it are government servants. Um, they may have lifetime tenures, but there actually are some rules that govern how they're supposed to behave, including the Ethics and Government Act that requires them to disclose a few things about their finances. And like every other judge, people don't really realize this, but the justices have no binding um, ethics code that just applies to them, and there's nobody who can apply it to them. There's no mechanism for it, but they are under a statute that applies to all judges that says that they cannot sit on cases where someone, either in their family or they, have a material interest in the outcome. And that actually applies to the Supreme Court, too. It's it's a pretty high bar to reach, um, and it's a pretty small amount of legislation for them to have to live up to, but there is something there, and there is the Ethics and Government Act. So anyway, so what happened was Dobbs comes down, The press corps starts taking a much closer look at this very politicized decision and very politicized court, and they start to find things. And I want to, you know, some people will know this, and it's worth reminding others. Jane, you've been looking at the court in great detail. You've actually been reporting on Clarence Thomas for decades. And, and <laughs> Sorry, I, I have to cop to that, and it's not on purpose, but he just keeps making news. Well, I mean, and we are the beneficiaries of that here, I think. But as you say, he keeps making news. And I want to draw the the connection here explicitly. So you have the Dobbs decision comes down. It shocks people. Because why? What was it that made people then, as Susan rightly said a moment ago, made people begin to look into things like Justice Thomas's recreational vehicle? How did these two things fit together? I mean, and Susan, I'd be interested to hear what what you make of this as well. I think it's um, partly because almost all of the justices during their confirmation hearings 
left the impression, at least, that they believed that the precedent should stand. Um, they believed in stare decisis, as it's called, and that they weren't going to overturn Roe. So there was a sense of sort of um, deception, I think, that undercut faith in their integrity. And I mean, I think, you know, what you've just said, to have a decision that is so far beyond where public opinion is, such a large majority of people in the country support the right to access to legal abortion, including even people who are religious people, Catholics, the majority of Catholics. I mean, the, the, the ruling seemed extreme and out of step and undemocratic. I mean, I think that for all those reasons, it shocked people and made people take a closer look. You know, I would take the timeline back a little bit more. There's also the 2020 election and the very, very political role played by Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. And remember uh, that for years she's been a conservative activist allied with, you know, part of the really far right extremist fringe of the Republican Party. But one of the things that happened was that Ginny Thomas, uh, you know, was sort of exposed as an explicit promoter of uh, the kind of rigged election fallacy and the the kind of Trumpian assault on the legitimacy of the 2020 election. And that included actually some of these really out there texts of hers that uh, became public as part of the uh, House January 6th committee's investigation of what happened on January 6th. And Mark Meadows, who was Trump's final chief of staff in the White House, at the same time that he was kind of assuring establishment type figures that he was really trying to help land the plane and, you know, get Trump to accept his defeat peacefully and move on. Uh, at the same time, he's receiving these unbelievable texts from Ginny Thomas that he turned over to the committee in which, you know, he, he's quoting Bible verses and she's quoting Bible verses and saying the fight of the righteousness shall continue. And this immediately raised uh, enormous questions about potential conflicts of interest on the part of Clarence Thomas. How much, if at all, was he being influenced uh, by his wife, who seemed to be openly advocating uh, for uh, the overturning of a legitimate election? So I would say that happened even a little bit before we then get this very explosive abortion decision. And, and I agree with everything that Jane said about that. That's no, and that's true. And I and I, I actually wound up writing about this Ginny Thomas situation earlier than the Dobbs decision. And the piece of it that just to add on to that that shocked people was that Thomas did not recuse himself mm. from handling a case that was related to the January sixth investigation by Congress, and it seemed to have direct bearing potentially on or involvement of his wife um, in that she was a major participant and supporter of, it seemed, the coup attempt. I mean, she'd actually lobbied a couple states to try to get them to overturn the election and and deny um, Biden's win. So the fact that she was so embroiled in an area that involved a case that he didn't recuse from raised questions directly about his ethics. This brings us to the reporting that's come out about Thomas in the past year and his ties to wealthy billionaire activists, including a name that people have come to recognize, and that's billionaire Harlan Crow. You know, 
people have read some of this journalism, which has been really terrific. And what's important to understand is how this recent set of investigations originated. And and one interesting person people may not know about is somebody named Lisa Graves. And Jane, who is Lisa Graves and what role does she play in this? So Lisa Graves is a for a lawyer who was formerly the chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. She was a Democrat. And she now runs a kind of a watchdog organization that's called True North Research. And um, so she does, she sort of digs into subjects, and a lot of the time her research ends up um, helping reporters. And in this case, it actually was kind of an incredible backstory. Um, She was investigating the opponents of Ketanji Brown Jackson and looking into a million dollar ad campaign that was run against Ketanji Brown Jackson. And um, one of the ads said at the end, if you want more information, you should watch this biographical film on Clarence Thomas. Hmm. And she thought, well, that's weird. So she decided to watch a biographical film of Clarence Thomas that was linked to in the ad. And when she's looking at it, she sees there are all of these billionaire and multimillionaire sponsors of what was basically a vanity biopic on Clarence Thomas. And she's wondering, who are all these rich people who've put together this, you know, flattering biography of Clarence Thomas and put it put it out on the air? And so um, she tells her fellow researchers, she has a little team, find out everything. Wow. Scrub the internet. I want to know who these people are. And one of them was Harlan Crow, whose name had surfaced in earlier years in connection with giving gifts to Clarence Thomas. And and one of her researchers yells out and says, look at this. Oh, my God. Look at this weird picture. And they found a portrait of Harlan Crow at his resort up in the Adirondacks. It's a private resort that he owns. It's a, you know, very luxurious sort of camping place. Um, and it's now it, famous painting that people may have seen. It's the famous painting. She unearthed the famous painting and um, put it out on the internet, actually. She she she, she uh, tweeted it, I think. And it shows Clarence Thomas with billionaire Harlan Crow. Uh, Mark Paoletta, who's an old friend of Clarence Thomas's and was actually a, a major official in the Trump White House at OMB, and um, several other people sitting there in their shorts, smoking cigars up at this luxurious place. They, she put out this thing saying, you know, the, the back room smoke and cigars have moved up to the Adirondacks. Look at this crowd. Mm. And that helped sort of set off a lot of people, too. I think ProPublica by that time had been digging a little bit into it on its own and um, began to investigate further into why is Clarence Thomas spending his vacation time with a billionaire named Harlan Crow at a fancy resort. And yeah. one resort led to the next and the next and the next. As one does. That, that's what happens with resorts. <laughs> I, I think one thing that you know, people who have followed this may not know every detail, but you know, the fact is he could not have gotten a bank loan for this RV. I mean, it is a, a remarkable fact that he took a loan from a private citizen for almost a quarter, more than a quarter of a million dollars. And I think a lot of people look at this and they say, why didn't he just go to a bank and get a loan? Like, why is he getting this kind of strange, off-the-regular financial books kind of loan? Have you Has he given any well, kind of I mean, reasonable first of all, explanation? Well, nothing is transparent or, or clear, really. So we should say we're just looking at sort of the, what, what's available in the way of shreds of information about this. But the RB cost $267,000. It, um, it was a used RV. But it 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 had 
um, a special kind of design on the side of sort of flames, flames licking the, the, yeah. the black with orange flames licking the sides. Um, and it, you know, has every kind of luxury and it's gigantic. Um, and um, I, I gather that he was already um, over his head in debt for his mortgage and probably wouldn't have qualified for another big, huge loan. Um, and um, so he turned to a friend and a friend who was a healthcare uh, tycoon who, as he said, was giving this kind of money to him and then later said just that the loan had been, quote, satisfied. But and no one knows what does that mean? That's a key point. To be satisfied. Because if if it turns out that what this was was a gift to right. Clarence Thomas, um, that's a, a gigantic gift and it should have been disclosed on his financial disclosures for the court, and he probably should have paid taxes, gift taxes. That seems to be the, the question of, of him not paying taxes is, is something we're going to hear more about in the proceedings ahead. All right. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at how plausible it is that there could be some reforms that would restore public confidence in the court. So, Susan, we've heard now about some of the specific concerns that people have about Thomas's conflicts, potential conflicts of interest or about ethics violations. What could actually happen to him? I mean, in, in what way can a Supreme Court justice be disciplined in a sense? Could he be impeached or something else? And <laughs> don't count on it. I mean, you know, Jane mentioned uh, the saga of Justice Fortas, uh, which happened, uh, you know, really when when I guess when we were little babies, more or less. And, uh, you know, the difference there is that Fortas resigned when ethics questions were raised uh, about uh, a pay payment, I think, of something like $30,000, which is, you know, not not nothing at the time, but certainly uh, pales in comparison to some of the allegations about Justice Thomas and the kinds of gifts and uh, lavish vacations. We didn't talk about the yacht trip to Indonesia and the, you know, the various undisclosed uh, things that have come out as a result of this good reporting. But, you know, the bottom line is that as an independent branch of government, uh, the judiciary and in particular the Supreme Court has been extremely resistant to any kind of oversight. And in fact, there are those who argue that Congress has no rights uh, to conduct this kind of oversight. So in and of itself, that sets up a potential clash between uh, constitutional branches of the government. So it's really hard to envision anything other than a self-policing kind of mechanism coming into play. Justice Chief Justice John Roberts uh, has seen himself as a guarantor, uh, both of the integrity, but also the independence of the federal judiciary. And so I think it's a major test and trial of his leadership. It's really quite ironic to me. I, I've often in the last few years thought about Justice Roberts. He doesn't get as much attention because he's not, you know, really a kind of figure of scandal in any way or politicization. Quite the opposite, right? That, you know, the Supreme Court has become uh, not just a conservative Supreme Court. He is a conservative himself, remember. But uh, it's, it's moved so far beyond Justice Roberts, that he's a kind of reminder of what used to be American conservatism. And, you know, I, it's, it seems to me 
that it must have been really heartbreaking for him these last few years. Uh, one thing he cared more than anything about, as far as I could tell as an observer, was the kind of independence and integrity or perceived integrity of uh, the Supreme Court. And now that has come so much into question. And he's certainly being pressured uh, and is, I think, probably uh, lobbying the justices and trying to figure out can they impose more of a robust set of standards of conduct upon themselves in order to avoid uh, Congress or somebody else trying to impose it upon them? Several of the justices have welcomed the idea of a very clear ethics code for themselves. And Chief Justice Roberts has, has said he's working on it, but he's been saying that now for years. And, they st- and it seems clear, looking at the tea leaves, that he's meeting resistance. He wants to have a unanimous uh, decision on this, it appears, and there seem to be some holdouts. And if I were guessing, I would assume they are Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. And Alito actually has been the voice of this argument that nobody in any other branch can regulate the Supreme Court. And he's made this very clear. He's had interviews with the, with the Wall Street Journal where he's argued this. And, and the Senate obviously takes issue with this because, among other things, they already decide on the budget for the Supreme Court and they have passed the Ethics and Government Act, and it applies to the Supreme Court, and they believe they have the right to make sure that it's followed in some way or another. And honestly, I mean, through the years, there have been ethical issues raised about trips and speaking engagements and this and that for justices who are appointed by Democrats and justices who are appointed by Republicans. But there is nothing that comes near the magnitude of goodies that have been taken by Clarence Thomas. I mean, honestly, it is it is shocking. And if he were in any other branch of government, um, th- th- he'd never be able to stay in that job. Unless he was Donald Trump. Well, that, that may be <laughs> I think true. it's important to point out, you mentioned the Ethics and Government Act. Donald Trump is a particularly extraordinary example who simply said, like, all those disclosure forms and, you know, conflicts of interest, everybody else, Never mind. Never mind when it comes to me. We started today talking about the Senate potentially subpoenaing people uh, to talk about potential violations. Who is it that could be subpoenaed and, and what is it that they're actually looking for, Jane? Um, well, there are three individuals who who the Senate is talking about sending out subpoenas to. One is Harlan Crow, the billionaire um, real estate inheritor who we've talked about from Texas. The other is someone named Robin Arkley, um, the second, who is a I guess he's in banking and development in California. And the third is Leonard Leo, who is the co-chairman of the Federalist Society. And the reason these three is they all seem to have been. Um, reportedly involved in either giving expensive vacations and and transportation to justices or arranging it in various ways um, and being just involved in in these sort of lucrative, luxurious gifts. Mm. Um, so there's there's a lot that the Senate wants to know about the behavior of Clarence Thomas in particular and also of Justice Alito also has been is is a justice who went on one of these um all expenses paid trips and the reason that I think that the Senate has decided to subpoena them is they are frustrated with the answers they've gotten so far which are 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 minor from these three about what's going on and what they're trying to figure out is is this corrupt do these people have interests in court cases? Is it corrupting the court? What else did they give 
to Clarence Thomas because the press has only been able to find so much. But it appears that Clarence Thomas maybe did this, took these trips annually. And Susan, as you mentioned earlier, Justice Alito has come out in sort of very unusually stark terms and said, in effect, I think his quote was, no provision in the Constitution gives them, meaning Congress, the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period, he said. sort of. It seems like he's trying to get out ahead of this issue. How do you rate the possibility that the Senate's process that we're beginning to see unfold now is actually going to be able to do something that would meaningfully affect how the court operates? Yeah, no. <laughs> Sorry. I don't I don't I don't buy the idea that this is going to lead to uh major kind of structural changes. I think it increases uh, the pressure on Ch- the chief justice uh Roberts as Jane mentioned, he's already been under a lot of pressure and he's been resistant or perhaps he's been lobbying behind the scenes to get a consensus he hasn't been able to get uh from some of the more conservative justices to go ahead. So I think that it's, you know, look, it's it's a political act by a political body. Let's, you know, face it, uh, Democratic voters, the people who are the, the core constituency for these senators uh, are extremely outraged, both about the substantive direction of the Supreme Court uh, in rolling back Roe versus Wade and possibly attacking other long-established rights. I think it's really worth noting, in addition to Dobbs, that uh, there was the concurring opinion by Justice Thomas uh, uh, and Alito that suggested that a whole host of what we might consider to be uh, settled rights, that they were also potentially interested over time in revisiting things like uh, gay marriage, for example, uh, and uh, other things that we've considered to be uh, essentially pillars of uh, the expansion of uh, human and personal rights over the last you know, five or six decades of American history. So part of it Including is... Including contraception, we might say. Mm. Well, yeah, that's right, I which mean, goes that's... all the way back to the, you know, 1964 Griswold decision, which is something that uh, extreme conservatives like Thomas and Alito seem like they would be willing to question. So part of it is a view, a clashing view of the institution of the Supreme Court. And then part of it is this you know, specific resistance to having any personal accountability. But I have to be honest that when it comes to these Senate hearings, I don't I don't think it would be fair to say to people like, well, this is going to result in some kind of uh, legislative reform of the Supreme Court, that this is going to result in, you know, kind of major changes. Our government is too divided right now uh, to really envision uh, that one chamber of a, a two-chamber Congress with the other chamber controlled by Republicans is going to make any meaningful legislative changes in the Supreme Court. I think it's also worth at the same time, and you're absolutely right, of course, the political prospects are uh, extremely limited for something like that. I think it's also worth mentioning, though, that there are concrete proposals, just so that people are aware of them, that one of the things people talk about as a, a way of changing in a, in a deep way how the court operates in public life is the idea of putting term limits on Supreme Court justice. This is something that, you know, that I think the assumption has always been, well, this has to be a constitutional amendment. There are, in fact, members of Congress who say, well, actually, the Constitution does not expressly grant life tenure on the Supreme Court. And so it's plausible that they could impose, for instance, an 18-year term 
where you serve 18 years on the Supreme Court and then you uh, have a, a continued job on another federal court, a lower federal court. So it's not saying that these folks are then um, you know, cast out of the judiciary, but it also means that they are not installed and you don't then have this kind of arms race to put younger and younger justices on the court. Uh, there have been bills to this effect over the years. Jane, how do you think about the way that this, the fact that we are even talking about term limits now as a desirable goal, as unlikely as it might be, um, that is an indication of a profound change in the perception of the court as this, it almost used to have this kind of sort of secular saint quality about it, that people would think, well, it's kind of somehow apart from the rest of the government. Is that period categorically over or is there any way that that can be restored? It's categorically over. I think. I think that 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 they're no longer seen as oracles from Delphi. They're seen as political appointees, and the game playing that's gone into how they get appointed is partly what is also undermined the sense of trust in it. I mean, let's not forget that there was the blocking of of Merrick Garland by Mitch McConnell, who was the Senate Majority Leader at the time. Um, and then the jamming on of by the same Mitch McConnell um, of Amy Coney Barrett in the in the final weeks right before um, the the 2020 election. So there's a sense that there's been a lot of game playing. I, I mean, the, the, what you're talking about is very popular across the country. If you look at polls, people overwhelmingly favor term limits mm-hmm. now for Supreme Court justices, those that think about it um, and are asked about it. Um, but I have to agree with Susan. I mean, in this in this moment, I mean, you're never going to get the House to buy into this, the Republican House. You're, you're, this is, it's become a, yet another issue for the partisan divide. In a saner time, I think this would probably happen. I mean, when these rules were designed, people didn't live to the ages that Supreme Court justices are living now. I mean, among other things, they had to ride circuits on horses, and they gave up at a certain age and stayed home. You know, I mean, it's lifetime tenure, I think, is just seen as as past its day by many people. But it's yet another one of those issues that nobody's doing anything about. Well, I, I think what we've made clear over the course of this conversation is the idea that the sort of the period of the court that used to exist to the degree it was ever kind of impervious to public uh, criticism is emphatically over. And it's now up to the press and the kinds of researchers you mentioned earlier to do what it seems that other branches of government are not doing. Susan, uh, just uh, as a final note, as you think about the court being sort of in a sense brought down to earth, the fact that there is now this scrutiny on it, on the one hand, it seems to diminish the sort of um, the, the reputation of the court. On the other hand, it makes it subject to the kind of scrutiny that, frankly, we expect of other public officials who serve in our name. So in a strange way, is that actually a better state of affairs than it was? Look, I, you know, we're never going to be against transparency and accountability when it comes to uh, institutions of government. Uh, you know, that's our lifeblood. And um, I welcome the reporting. I can't wait. Uh, that's for sure for Jane's book, uh, which is going to help us understand this institution even more. Uh, you know, but look, I, I would I would also step back and say that the Supreme Court, like all of the institutions of government, has had periods of greater or lesser uh, politicization, times when its decisions were greeted with great trepidation by parts of the country at the expense of other parts of the country. Uh, the great, you know, civil rights court uh, of uh, mid-century America of Brown versus Board was extremely controversial uh, and was seen as highly political in parts of the country. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, then the world has changed. Part of what we're seeing happening right now is a dramatic shift in the ideological foundation of the court, in part because, as Jane uh, mentioned, you know, you could really call this the Mitch McConnell court uh, that we're seeing. And it's a very radical court uh, that is not conservative in the sense of, you know, small C conservative, but actually making pretty radical decisions that are going to change American life. So part of this is you're seeing a very strong reaction from Americans who are saying uh, that this court is moving the country uh, pretty rapidly in directions without being accountable uh, in the way that other parts of our government that have this enormous power are seen as accountable. So I think it's a very important development. It's positive development. Remember, this is a Supreme Court that still uh, doesn't televise its hearings, uh, that still is very opaque in many ways, right? It still is the least accountable, least visible uh, part of our government. So I say bring it and, uh, you know, <laughs> definitely stay tuned for Jane's book. Yeah, it's absolutely progress that that there's been this fantastic reporting on it, I think. I mean, and, and, and to Susan's point, I mean, I do think, obviously, there have been other decisions in the past that have been highly controversial and seen as political. But I think in past courts... Um, when you think of Brown, I think it was a unanimous decision. Mm. I think that that what we're seeing now are many more six three decisions yeah. where it's so divided that it's so clear that there's one political view on one side and one on the other, and it takes away the aura that there's some kind of sort of neutrality and independence that governs uh, the law in this country. Anyway, I thank you guys so much for the plugs for the forthcoming book. I just hope <laughs> to get it out one of these days. All right. Well, you'll be writing and we'll be looking forward to it and we'll be talking along the way. All right. Thanks, Jane. And thank you, Susan. Thank you. Great to be with you both. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back next week. And thank you for listening.